0: Get easy, it's your Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George program. This is a show, your one stop shop for all Prop 13 discussion. In the program, Split Roll, we're talking about the schools and communities first initiative looking to reform the commercial aspect of Prop 13. Today, to talk about it, we have on Derek Sagehorn. Of East Bay for everyone who's been doing a series of walking tours to bring attention to schools and communities. First, we'll talk about the history. We'll talk about some uh, analysis, some some pitfalls, some some uh, well, just a lot of everything. It'll be a lot of fun. So let's get into things. Welcome, Derek. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. So. I think everybody listening to this probably knows a little bit of Prop 13, so let's kind of cut through the boring background stuff, and let's talk about where we are today with the whole idea of a split role, uh, Prop 13, partial repeal, and what you're doing uh, as far as bring awareness through your walking tour and everything else.
1: Yeah, um, it's a really important topic. I mean, labor, civic society, uh, or civil society groups, teachers um, have all been trying to you know plan for how can we rationalize our property tax system? It's been 40 no, forty years since uh, Prop 13 passed. Uh, and it
0: hasn't been good.
1: No, it's it's been a pretty bad 40 years, especially if you're uh, a working person, you're, if you're a student uh, at public schools or universities in California. Um, if you're a, a user of public parks and recreation facilities, it's been pretty bad. So, In the last uh, 10 years, there's been on and off um, efforts by these kind of – this collective – this coalition between labor, civil society organizations, uh, anti-poverty organizations to think about how could we repeal Prop 13 or at least reform it and – 2016, we're talking about doing it. 2018, we're talking about doing it. But uh, it looks like the big effort is kicking off for the 2020 election. Um,
0: and, and evolve is kind of the is the framework that everyone's working under. to yeah. make this happen.
1: Evolve Evolve California is the nonprofit that's been kind of keeping the torchlight of Prop 13 um, repeal reform for the last. I think like it must be 30 years at this point. Um, but th- so they they are the ones that uh, they're the um, progenitors of the ballot measure, the split roll ballot measure, which would um, I mean, just to lay the base out is it would um, make it. So commercial properties, meaning uh, retail, uh, office space, industrial properties would have to pay market rate um, uh property taxes and they would be reassessed every year. Um, there are a lot of phase ins and carve outs, especially for small business. We can kind of get into those. Yeah. But um, that is that is the, the the genesis of it. And I mean the biggest question I get when we talk about this kind of stuff is people say, what about apartment buildings? And uh, it doesn't there doesn't touch um, the property taxes of apartment buildings. It's very uh,
0: confusing is commercial and you, you think, oh I'm a commercial landlord but that's officially residential usage. They, they, yeah.
1: They've they've excluded uh, tenant-occupied property in sure. the ballot language. So um, anybody who lives in a piece of property is not going to be affected by this. Um, so they, the, this was originally, they had gotten signatures to put this on the 2018 ballot. Um, back in uh, 2017, they, they were mobilized with a lot of people after the Trump election, and they went out and got signatures to put on the 2018 ballot. Um, I think they wisely decided to hold off for the
0: 2020 um
1: uh, election?
0: The... Yeah, you want the biggest turnout you can, <laughs> right? Like, and... when it's like homeowners are going to be people who turn out. And just to say, this doesn't affect homeowners, but it is worth saying. Everything with Prop 13 weaponizes homeowner anxiety, right. As being, oh, we got to protect the commercial uh, property owners because homeowners, even if it doesn't make any sense. Yeah,
1: and and we've already we're already seeing the um, protect Prop 13, small business landlord, um, commercial landlord types groups that are putting out this kind of um, propaganda around Prop 13. And they're emphasizing that it's going to, you know, Wrongly emphasizing that it's going to affect anybody's uh, home um, assessed value, they you know all their their images will show a, a single family home yeah. in the the iconography, and they'll talk about yeah coming for your house next and all this kind of stuff, which is absolutely not on the table. So um, they they're uh, they're pushing out this message, and they've already been accumulating money. So it's going to be this is going to be a big fight in terms of lots of hundreds of millions of dollars. The small business, the, the big business, uh, the commercial landlords, they're all going to be throwing money into this fight next year. And so it's really going to be a people power versus yeah. corporate interest in terms of protecting the privilege of
0: these commercial landlords. Let's talk, let's talk history right now. It's mm-hmm. worth mentioning, Prop 13 was sold back in the 70s as a homeowner thing, but yet- all landowners got on board, and this was not a mistake. This was not an oversight. This was very much the political coalition that fought
1: for it originally. Right. Well, I think it's important to also remember that, that the big businesses were actually opposed to Prop 13, um, not not out of any kind of um, do-gooder mentality from them, but because they they thought that, uh, the, that it was too drastic and that it would uh, upset the apple cart for themselves. Well, um, you know, they have actually benefited tremendously from it in the interim. So they're not at any, they're you know, they, they opposed it when it originally passed. But as you know, you can look at the uh, assessment records. Uh, the every uh, California assessor puts out a report each year and kind of talks about the way the tax roll has shifted. They've added more more value because more homes have been built. People have rebuilt their homes and added more value. Uh, homes have changed hands and therefore new assessments. Right. But one of the things that assess Have noticed and um, have noticed in the last uh, couple decades is there's been a property tax shift where homeowners are actually paying a greater share of our total state property tax burden. Yeah, because commercial uh, landlords and property owners uh, they never die, they never pass on their uh, they they never have to um, move out of state or. Or go to a different place. They can just retain their uh, commercial property tax basis. Therefore, you know, thirty years is maybe the life, the, the, the expected life that somebody might stay in one single family home or a condo or something like that. At the end of that thirty years, that's going to turn over. It's going to become somebody else's, um, um, or maybe it gets inherited and they get their property
0: tax base yeah. to their children. But-, but usually, you're not maximizing your trust shielding in the same way that. Commercial businesses, right, and and if, even if a business shuts down, and even if they're kind of like moving out of state, liquidating, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of case studies. A lot of people will continue to have a trust on owning it, and they'll just have a passive landlord revenue stream. Even if someone else really takes over in right. fact, the property, they still legally. I mean, and these those corporations are. They might. It might make sense for them
1: to move out of state or move their operations inland, where it's a. If you're a manufacturer or something like that, but they might still own that property as a income stream, and they just might be <laughs> in the business of being a landowner rather than you know building yeah. widgets.
0: It's a very. It's a very lucrative asset, and if you have the special legal privilege that the longer you hold on to it, the cheaper it is. People are going to hold on to it if you're a business, right? And so we, we go
1: back and look at that history. Uh, and so the businesses actually kind of fought Prop 13 at the beginning. The, the The people that put Prop 13 on the ballot, though, they sold it as this um, measure to protect homeowners. And um, while there are there are like legitimate cases where people in the '70s because of stagflation were taxed out of their homes, this was just a too too radical of a um, of a remedy. And we've gotten to the position where there are you know in in my advocacy. Um, in the East Bay, I've talked to um, people in their their 60s and their 70s who said, I voted for Prop 13 the first time, you know, because I was worried about my grandma getting kicked out of the home. But they have come to realize that it was, you know, the, be- the real beneficiaries of Prop 13 have been people in affluent coastal areas. It hasn't been renters. It hasn't been... Um, people trying to move to the Bay Area for whatever reason to get a better job or whatever. Um, but it has been homeowners, incumbent homeowners in affluent areas, and it's been uh, corporations. And, uh, you know, right now we're focusing on how can we make sure that those corporations will start contributing again to the, you know, the, the commonwealth in terms of, you know, uh, Apple, you know, they have their new spaceship, right? But the land underneath the spaceship they had owned for yeah. for decades, so the, the, their property tax value for that is, is, has gotten a lot better uh, bigger. But it still doesn't reflect the land values yeah. of that le- of that land that they acquired decades ago. So even in the case where we have a new gigantic Apple spaceship employing tens of thousands of people, they are still. Benefiting from I think early 2000s, late '90s land rates because they bought up had to buy up all that property for that specific purpose.
0: so, so I'm trying to piece together exactly how the political coalition makes sense originally, and so I, I, it makes sense to me if you are like a Xerox in the late 1970s I'm just like which in my mind is like the the huge corporations that are uber successful at the time, you're like, I am making money through corporate stuff, not being a real estate you know, a entity. So I don't want to take energy off real estate because then it's going to come after me. And I mean, in, in the end, you know, more sh- more weight has been shifted towards income taxes, the state level, et cetera. But I think the effect in the end is if you can't beat them, join them. And every major corporation has started to really necessarily have to own their own real estate to stay effective. So in the end, it seems like hard that there's not are big companies, certainly in Silicon Valley, are also major real estate holders.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've created a system where you you either have to have the protection of Prop 13 through being a homeowner or owning, as a corporation, owning land, or you're at the mercy of people who own the land <laughs> and have the Prop 13 protections. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I think if I was, you know, in terms of producing you know, software or producing movies or producing, um, uh, good online content or whatever it is, if I was in that business, I think it would be better if we focused on that instead of saying, how can we you know, make the most money out of hoarding this land in Silicon Valley?
0: Well, and the same thing, even even though there's mom and pop exemptions, I mean, you look at like down the line, if you're a mom and pop uh, commercial entity, you've been protected. But a lot of my fear like a bunch of record stores have closed because they're renters. Right. So it's just this very disparate impact. If you're a commercial renter, you are very uh, precarious. If you're a commercial owner, you have a lot more uh, room to play with.
1: Yeah, and I so I, I wrote a piece um, a couple months ago in um, this Supreme Court of California blog, and um, I could probably give you the info if you want to put the HTML up. I'll, I'll put it at the end of the app. Um, and uh, so one of the things I talked about is that you know the the benefits of uh, Prop 13 protections to commercial entities have been uneven. Um, people who don't own property, who are, are corporations or small businesses that don't own property, have uh, are at a structural disadvantage. Um, if you are um, a small record company, you're already getting your your lunch eaten by Amazon and by other yeah. uh, internet-based per, uh, ser- services. And then in addition, if you're trying to, if maybe if you're a software company, a, a startup, you are now competing against um, companies like Oracle um, or um, Google or Facebook that have the structural advantage of having like
0: uh, protected property tax uh, bases, and you can't even you can't even start a garage anymore. I think there's officially rules in Palo Alto. So right. Really, yeah. all these, everyone's being squeezed. So though
1: you're you're already at a structural advantage from market power share, right? If we were just doing the pure. Uh, frictionless um, economy of just in terms of yeah. we the, they they're at a uh, they have a pole position in the market and then we're also going to say we're going to subsidize Oracle and Apple and yeah. Facebook and say they should have to pay um, a a fixed assessment on their property taxes. It, it's not if we think about. So, uh the at least the mythos of Silicon Valley of being a place where um firms and people and uh ideas compete uh we're we're essentially saying no no i you know forty years ago we decided that if you got here first and you you're a corporation that bought land in the in the valley in the eighties that you're gonna we 're gonna give you pay subsidize all of your um all the expenses that you have in terms of transporting your workers, educating your workers, uh, providing social welfare, all those things, we're going to make the new entrants have to pay them instead.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's not great when you have a kind of oligopoly of three or four big players that own up most of the actual land in Silicon Valley for commercial and yeah, really control who works for them. It's not good for workers. It's not good for the kind of vibrancy of the area. And I think one thing that's also funny is people were pointing out. I think there's been multiple entries, but Uber is a famous one where they're they're buying up real estate to run their unprofitable business, and they end up you know selling it later. And in the process, they made a ton of money in real estate speculation, yeah. much more than actually doing in actually running a business.
1: That actually the the, the iconic example of that is in. Um, they've done it in a couple different instances. It's not just one. They did that in uh, San Francisco. Uh, with uh land purchases for the uh, around uh, Mission Bay but in downtown Oakland um you know where I spent a lot of time they uh purchased the former uh Capwell's or Sears building right on top of 19th Street BART station that was slated to become um an office development i think that was in 2014 um they held that for two and a half years it was still under construction the entire time they <laughs> there was no um there, Not a single Uber worker reported for work and yeah. did whatever they do, I guess. Uh, in that time, they sold it to another firm, um, and I think they made something like $100 million just <laughs> in that process. The, literally, all they did was they had the entitlements and they started building— this office space or re- retrofitting this office space but there was no productive work performed in this building at, at any time during their ownership so uh yeah i mean the fame uber famously just like subsidizes a- every ride that they do and you can credibly say that uber has made more money from real estate speculation than they have from actually uh, moving people around yeah. like, through cities
0: it's funny too because it was a sears building and mm-hmm. like you, all these people buy up all these big you know, real estate things and the actual companies come and come and fall. Usually you look at a building that's been around for a hundred years, it's some Defunct corporation, but a lot of times the real estate holdings mm-hmm. stay almost on internal eternally, yeah, and they never really get it. And they're usually kind of more invisible companies that try to stay under the radar and just make a lot of money, right? Yeah, I, I mean that, and that's the way that we've set it up
1: is you can you can your your land speculation in terms of uh, as a corporation owning real estate can subsidize your might would otherwise be an unprofitable. Uh, endeavor, um, and I, I think I, I'm not necessarily a, a free market guy, but if we're going to be in a free market, a ostensible uh, market based system, we shouldn't be su- subsidizing people and making these. Um, you know, dinosaur-type industries, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just the pure parasitic energy. Uh, So so just to get one more thing. Uh, So earlier I was saying, like, oh, it wasn't a mistake that, you know, this loophole got Mm -hmm. in the original Pop 13. But actually, was it? Was was Jarvis just an idiot who put in, who covered all land? Or was there really real estate interest who put this in the original Pop 13?
1: I, I haven't... Actually, there's a, a biography of Howard Jarvis. I, autobiography. I think it's called um, Mad, Mad as Hill. Hell. Yeah. I, I haven't read it yet. And then, I mean, I, I can't really get into Jarvis's mind. So I'm upcoming, I, I...
0: Upcoming book club. I have a copy, and okay. I know there's one floating around. Uh, yeah. Uh, one guest who I gave a copy to turned out Autograph by Howard Jarvis oh wow that's t-
1: terrifying <laughs> might have to burn it
0: <laughs> yeah, very cursed book
1: yeah uh, so I can't really get into his head I can only from what I tell from secondary sources I mean you want a big coalition when you're putting a ballot measure together so throwing in the businesses maybe he thought he could uh, peel off of a couple of them but you know Prop 13 was sold as we mentioned before it was sold as for homeowners but the beneficiaries as we've seen yeah. have been um residential landlords yeah they've been uh homeowners in coastal affluent California, not homeowners in Fresno or Stockton, where the market doesn't really change very much. Yeah. Um, so, the actual low-income homeowners, in, in the vast majority of cases, haven't really seen much benefit from Prop 13. Maybe in a couple select neighborhoods, you could say that. But the vast majority of, of um, low-income homeowners who are mostly in uh, Contra Costa County, Far East Contra Costa County, in San Joaquin County, they're in Bakersfield and Fresno and the Inland Empire in Los Angeles they have seen relatively little benefit while uh commercial landlords, residential landlords, and homeowners in you know places like Palo Alto have seen tremendous upside and benefit and I think it's also we've talked a lot about who benefits who's been benefiting from the status quo uh, We gotta go back and think about who has been immiserated by this this status yeah. quo i mean in oakland where where I live. Um, the city of Oakland had to cut about 35 to 40 percent of their workforce in the w- one year after Prop 13 passed.
0: There's, there's two things that Prop 13 did. One right. is it stopped assessments from growing, which has been a slow, slow decay. And But the year afterwards, it cut everything down to 1 percent, which immediately had people go into panic to fix this.
1: Right. And so the you know when you think about as a city as a uh, how are you going to balance your budget um to uh, to try to deal with these massive cuts the first things to go are those things you think of as uh, life enriching so uh parks uh recreation centers uh crossing guards uh those type of of things were the first to go and, and we Tom's
0: schools cut their music programs yeah, yeah. sure
1: and, and so we see that in oakland as we see that um the parks are horribly maintained because they just simply don't have enough staff to go and mow the lawn or uh, make sure that the, the grass is being watered or clean the bathrooms. So as a result... Um you know we we are we may put a parks bond on the uh, or a parks par, parks parcel tax on the ballot next march which is a really awful way to go about funding services but that's what we got to do yeah. the same thing they cut the library back and uh, for the longest time oakland just didn't have uh library service on sundays which i don't know about you but i mean that's a good day for me to go to the library is oh absolutely like a sunday is, is a great time to go to the library uh they had uh, – the libraries would close at 5 o'clock. Uh, who, who is a working person who's going to be able to go get a book from the library or some a movie or whatever they want if the library closes at 5 o'clock and it's not open on Sundays? The
0: real dream is seven days a week, make it open like 20 hours a day.
1: Yeah. You know? So we, the, we had these library cuts for the longest time and we had to fund it back by a parcel tax. Um you know, and you could just go down the list. Uh, we have, um, we have b- have had bonds and parcel taxes to help pay for schools, which are still even with those. Uh, Oakland has a um, you know a lot of high needs uh, uh, students, a lot of kids that are on fr- free or reduced price lunches, um, and we have a lot of kids, a lot of kids in a class. You know, we have 33, 35, and, and more stu- students per class or per teacher, and you know, at the same time, those teachers can't afford to live in Oakland. We had a teacher strike in back in February, March, I think March a little bit, um, because the, the the cost of living, the rent, yeah. um, has gotten through the roof and we are cash strapped as a city. And we're, even though the state has kind of changed their funding formulations in recent years, they're still not enough. Um, and so among all, like that, that's just talking about students and recreation and parks, and you know, then you go into homelessness, and you know, we have Oakland's uh, point in count, uh, point in time count, um, the the population of the last two years of unhoused people in Oakland and Alameda County has exploded. Uh, so we're seeing, uh, and this this is, um, you know, we have all these unhoused people and. They, they they desperately need services. They definitely need a place to live that isn't just a tent, that isn't just a tough shed. Yeah. Um, and so we have just all these tremendous needs that are going unmet. Be- and we can't... It's not like um, the city is electing to tax itself yeah. where it can. It's adding these parcel taxes, it's adding these sales taxes, which are regressive, not ideal. But even... We're just plugging holes. We're just trying to get back to what we were in 1978. And so we have all these, these desperate unmet needs. And at the same time, you know, you, you walk through downtown Oakland and you see, um, you know, it's not the – the ones the ones that I worry about when I walk through downtown Oakland are not the new office buildings going up, although, you know – If you don't build enough houses to go with the offices, that's a problem. The ones that I worry about is you go back and you look at the old office buildings in downtown Oakland, the ones that have been there since 1926, they are paying pennies on the dollar in terms of property taxes per square foot compared to maybe a building that got built three years ago or one that changed hands three years ago. Uh, Because we have this grandfathering or this um, eternal assessment basis uh for c for corporations under prop thirteen so we have, uh, you know, I, I do these walking tours in downtown Oakland, sure, where we um, just to educate people about split roll because it's it's kind of wonky, you know, it's it's tough to understand. i
0: understand just like, it's the people who get away with this, it, they do it invisibly, so it takes a lot of visualization and kind of overturning the stones to make people see what's happening right under their noses. Right. So yeah. you know,
1: we 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 meet up in uh, right in front of City Hall, Fourteenth and Broadway, right there, and I uh, I just I have a um, I have a chart and I I say we go. Uh, 14th and Broadway, there, there's the central office building, and they're paying um, something like uh, $200 per square foot, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then we, the building across the street, they're paying $400 per square foot. And then the newest building that just got built is paying $600 per square foot, and, and they're like the the older building, the central office building built in 1926, they recently updated it. Now has fiber. You know, it's got modern interior finishes and all the kind of things that you would expect. You know, smaller offices because it, you know, you had your uh, you know small attorneys and insurance brokers who you know used to have it. So it's not the big open floor plan, but the square footage. It's the same place. It's yeah. right on top of a BART station, right next to the courts, right next to all the other businesses high value, lots of rent, right? Just
0: because it's old and quaint doesn't mean a lot of people aren't making a
1: lot of money owning the real estate. Exactly. So, we look at that and we say, why are they paying a third of the price of the people that opened a new building three years ago? Um, And what... Are they, you know, are they offering a cheaper rent? Do you think? Do you suppose they're offering cheaper rent to their tenants because of that? I,
0: I, That's what Jarvis promised. <laughs> and I'll say this: the idea is that landlords will keep rent forever low if you if you keep their property tax low isn't true for commercial landlords, residential landlords. People will charge whatever they can get.
1: Right. And so, you know, we 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 visualize that for people just along the skyline because you know you you don't know. There's a big sign on. Uh, there's a big neon sign on these buildings that says property tax. Uh, you know, fixed at nineteen seventy nine levels or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, That's it, not said. You you have to go up into the assessor's uh, uh, website, or you know, you got to pull up the files and figure out that you know they're, you know, this hasn't changed hands for thirty five years, and therefore they're getting a free ride.
0: So, so was your was your process to pull up? the assessment for every parcel in downtown Oakland? Uh,
1: I don't have enough time for that, but I, I picked a high high uh, high interest targets, you know, the, yeah. the, the big buildings that you kind of can see. And so
0: you're doing this by hand and not really through an automated process? No,
1: although I do have two people with me at EastPay for Everyone who are who are actually good at data, Yeah, <laughs> like who do it for a job, and so they're going through and, and w- w- helping me now, and cool. we're also doing some visualizations in terms of trying to understand who is benefiting, yeah. um, and like where are these pockets of um, <laughs> tax avoiding or talks um
0: but that's that's funny even one person just using old non-computer standards can really still find a lot of weird data yeah yeah i mean and then so we we proceed
1: from there and i I mean i tell the story of um i've been doing these tours and one i'd like to point out is there's a um there is a big gigantic block size parcel in downtown Oakland, um, that uh, was purchased in the late 1990s by a, a San Francisco commercial developer named Shorenstein. They're they're famous. They built a bunch of offices in uh, San Francisco, especially in the 80s and 90s. So they purchased this uh, parcel. They demolished it. They're going to build a gigantic—I uh, mean, for Oakland standards—30-story uh, uh, office building on there. <laughs> the problem is, is they are—they start digging the foundations in uh, the summer of 2006. Uh, so the co- economy falls out underneath yeah. the feet, and they immediately stop. They don't cover up the site. It's just an open pit where they're digging the foundations. They take their steel that they had purchased and ready to get ready to build this thing. They send it to Arizona and warehouse it for 10 years. So in the meantime, the city of Oakland is has this gigantic pit with that is – I mean, if you've seen Parks and Rec, there's like this episode, a series of episodes about a giant pit.
0: But the thing is it was funny on, on the Parks and Rec, they meant to have this be stretched the entire series, but yeah. then they got sick of it and like wrapped up in season two. Well but but in real life, this, no... pit, this pit went on for ten years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this pit existed for ten years and this is
1: uh back when we had like normal or more normal weather. I mean, El Nino came and filled the pit with water. So we had Lake Shorenstein in downtown Oakland yeah. of this this man made uh lake that it was just a complete eyesore. Well,
0: so, so in your opinion, is it good or bad for the fabric of a city to have empty lots and open pits uh, instead of like buildings yeah, and people, places that people use? It's not great. <laughs> it, and so,
1: you know, when when you know rents uh, declined precipitously in Oakland uh, in the years two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I think they bottomed out in two thousand nine. But Shorenstein held on to this and held on to it and kept it. And you know we needed housing we could have built a housing tower on there we could have um done a bunch of different things with that site um if we had public control over it if we had a planning process where we could say hey uh you're sitting on this site you should be playing uh you know of uh, market rate because they're again they're paying They are not even playing market rate because it's an empty site right there's yeah. no improvement on it but they're paying a 10 year old a uh, land assessment on it so they're they're like there, there's a decreasing value in yeah. it uh, in terms of the... every
0: year it gets smarter and smarter it, yeah, to t- hold on to
1: it exactly. So we have this vacant site or you know, full of water. And um, they finally, when the rents uh, are exploding in Oakland in 2013 and 2014, they start submitting plans for Oakland to it's essentially the same tower, they just change some facade things um, and start building again. So, what they did, they went to Arizona, pulled all that steel out, yeah, and then I think in 2000. Sixteen, you know, right as Trump is coming into office and we're, he's stopping tariffs and and whatnot on these projects, they break down and they have steel at two thousand six, two thousand seven prices. Yeah, and they're gonna, you know, they put that sucker up real quick. Because, you know, they have land that's assessed at 1990-whatever values. They've got steel that's from 2006. Yeah. And they haven't had to really pay much at all for the privilege to speculate on this land for, I guess now it's about
0: 20 years yeah, people people make it sound like developers do their evil business by building buildings and walking away with a lot of money. The truth is, the people who make a lot of money, it's less about building the building and more about sitting on it for the right amount of time. Right. If you and buy low, sell high, that's when you make real big bucks.
1: I mean, I would have liked it if they had, uh, you know, if they had built it when they had started the foundation in 2006. If we could have just forced them to build it right then, we'd have a, a office building. We'd be getting property tax. We'd have low because it would have. <laughs> Been lower rent because they would have uh, they would have been in a bind to uh, to lease it. We would have had something actually kind of useful for the community, but now it's high rent office space where they are just making a killing.
0: Yeah, it's funny in the framework of urban property rights, like it's 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 conceded that well, of course, you know, to build stuff we need to have processes to work with it. We have to get approvals, but to just sit on stuff and speculate. Usually cities don't get very hands on. I mean some places have vacancy taxes yeah. which I'd say if you're like a, a, a an empty lot, if you're a parking lot, you know, those aren't vacant by yeah. most vacancy tax rules.
1: Um I have to check. So Oakland just passed a, a vacancy tax in their last election. Um and I I think there were some concerns in terms of the drafting of it. It had some um, kind of weird definitions and whatnot. I guess that's one of the problems with direct democracy is it's tough to undo that kind of stuff.
0: It's easy for bad actors to get their hands in the mix and yeah, kind of fool prop, people.
1: Prop 13, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it happens. So w- one of the issues is now we have all these um, mostly hillside, Oakland Hills landowners who have you know these empty lots that they've been sitting on for decades, and they're sk- kicking and screaming because they might need to pay an extra $5,000 a year for the privilege of keeping that a vacant lot. And what's really frustrating is the city has kind of, um, kind of bent the knee, so to speak, and has delayed the implementation of this vacancy tax to assuage some of their concerns. So even when we do, even when we do kind of, uh, try to put these vacancy taxes in place, the most, literally the most privileged people in the city of Oakland, the hillside landowners who own like, Oh yeah, I uh, I want to have an empty lot next to my house as yeah. a kind of defensive, <laughs> nimbyism. Uh, th- they, the city, will bend their knee to them. So uh, that is, kind is,
0: of... is that what they say, or is like, oh, I might plan to develop this in the future? Yeah,
1: I mean, there, you get a lot of different excuses. You say there's people who say, yeah, I was going to build a house for my family to live in next to me, and all their kids have moved away, yeah. right? Like, I mean. <laughs>
0: Can Oakland help out and take this land off their hands, buy it, like yeah. their assessed value? The That'd I mean, be there's, so a of, nice of them, there. there's a
1: lot of different. Uh, I mean, my personal preference would be in a lot of those hillside scenarios where it would just be to put a conservation easement on it, um, and you know we can, we shouldn't be really building um, a lot more stuff in the hills to be so to speak. Um, if you
0: put a conservation easement, there should be a thing. You can't have it conserve for a while and then you sell off and develop it later. Right. Like it should actually retain being conserved in perpetuity. It,
1: some kind of community land trust for conservation As easements. opposed to it, the
0: tax easements for the orchards in the peninsula. Yeah. They were easements for decades and then they sell off. It's like what do we do here? We didn't conserve these. Yeah, <laughs> Like this did not help in the end.
1: So the 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 vacancy tax is a thing um, that I hopefully we can kind of push forward and um, but at, this, at the end of the day it's it's the number of lots it actually affects is relatively low. Um, yeah. The problem in Oakland is is not necessarily vacant lots, but it's it's bad zoning in the neighborhoods that you want to build in, in like places like Rockridge, and Piedmont, and, uh, and but, Temescal. But but, but, but
0: but compare this to commercial property taxes. This affects every parcel. It's yeah. very broad. It should be assessed at market value. What's nice is you capture value broadly and not by kind of extracting little piecemeal concessions here. Right,
1: right. I mean, and it treats vacant land as a negative externality, which, you know, in the cases of high-value land, it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, unless it's a public park where it's the city handling it, not just some... A developer holding on to some pit in the city. Right. So I mean, so that's a
1: that's another kind of example along the walk that we do. Um, I mean, the other thing that we kind of um, we go through and we um, we see a, a two gas stations right next to each other in Chinatown, and it's very easy to point out and say like, hey. These gas stations have one was you know purchased in 1985 I think the other one was purchased in 2010 yeah thereabouts um, do you think do you see any difference could you tell the price difference based off of the property taxes yeah no there's no difference so the, the idea that like they're gonna pass on the savings of this gas because they have a, a lower property assess assessment basis is just complete. It's funny,
0: one of the things, I haven't read the whole book yet, but Jarvis's book, one of the things upset him is that assessments were not yearly. So you'd have different assessments on the same block, even. Mm -hmm. So, of course. Prop thirteen did gangbusters to fix that. You know, it's weird. Like, I mean, this is nice that there's actually yeah yearly assessments, and this is the first time California's going to be doing assessments in decades. One
1: of the funny things about uh, some of this is is reading the assessors, the California assessors. Every county has an assessor; it's an elected assessor. Um, So, it's been kind of a weird thing that they haven't really had to do their job for yeah. 40 years. Uh, they they had to, you know, when you uh, improve a property, when you build on a vacant lot, they have to assess that. And, you know, it's kind of that's a little bit fuzzier job. But for the most part, you know, you sell a house for uh, $500,000. They record the assessment as $500,000. And then yeah. it, it's kind of just on autopilot from there. Well, you know, with this split role, a lot of the assessors are complaining because they're like, we don't have the staff, and uh, we don't have the training to do all this. And um, I mean, it's a lost art. Yeah, you like got to fire. Yeah, I think it's like a. It'll be kind of like a, the Renaissance, the rediscovering of assessment knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> that's exciting stuff. Um, so the 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 last thing, and like I mean, not the last thing, it's really important, but also on our tours, we focus on the idea of like those unmet needs and uh, in, in Oakland and specifically, we talk about the schools that are underfunded. We talk about the parks, recreation centers that have to cl- have had to close their hours and the libraries that are underfunded. Um, so it, for us, it's really to identify like we it would be one thing if all of society of California society was getting along great. And Prop 13 was enacted 40 years ago, and our schools are doing pretty well, and our libraries are doing pretty well, and we don't have a lot of homeless people who are living on the street, and everything is hunky dory. Why? Why mix it up? But you know, you you walk along this tour, and it's we go like a mile and a half, right? It's just right through downtown, yeah. And but you see these these gigantic office towers where people are profiting tremendously off of the BART station the courts, uh, location, being next to other businesses, all these different things. And at the same time, they're paying you know pennies in the dollar compared to new entrants into downtown Oakland. But at the same time, you're seeing just the ab- abject poverty in terms of people on the street and underfunded public services. And it, it's just really hard to come away with that and be like, you know, the status quo is fine. Everything's working.
0: <laughs> it's funny, too, because if you read enough uh, right-wingers talking about California, as everyone should, because it's fun, too, they're still complaining California's a high-tax place. Yeah. And they're saying, look at the high-income taxes. Look at, you know, the fact we're, like, John Coopel of Howard Jarvis Tax uh, Payers Association still points, we still pay a lot in property tax. It's like, and the sales tax are high. But the problem is, like we are simultaneously in, in putting in, in a lot of cases, regressive taxes, like sales taxes, largely in order to subsidize the the value seeping into landowner speculation. Right. Like we, we are we are avoiding the easiest way to recapture value, the best way, the most sustainable way, and we're actually doing taxes that are largely just leaking out. And we're doing it the hard way, every step along the way, which yeah. is why we are not austere in, in in a lot of senses, but we're just being really, really dumb about it and being austere in practice.
1: Right, and and like the the claim from Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association that we ate were high tax state is, we're actually our property tax valuation is. Um, the effective rate is like something like statewide is like 0. 0.9. Yeah. And national effective rate is 1.2. So,
0: but the problem is because real estate here's the thing when you cut property taxes, it's not like everything is cheaper down the line. It's just when people buy a property, it's how much credit can you get. Yeah. And if you're paying less in taxes later, you pay more upfront. Right. And when you pay more upfront, this leads to 1% of that as your tax rate. Sure. You know? so,
1: and the other thing is it's to consider in terms of, um, we I mentioned earlier there's a, there has been a tax shift right and we see that um, that commercial property taxes are um, they're they're paying less and less and actual homeowners and I guess residential landlords are paying more. There's that has been the shift over time. Well, you'll see in terms if you look at our, uh, a chart of effective tax rates among like the Bay Area counties, you'll see San Francisco will have an effective property tax rate of. Point six because they have had uh, you know they have lots of jobs, new jobs that have been coming in. Same thing, uh, San Mateo County I think is a point seven. Uh, Santa Clara County is point seven. Alameda uh, I think is a point nine. Mm. Um, Marin is a point nine, which is kind of weird to think about. So the 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 new jobs that are coming in um, that are paying uh, lots of not just property taxes but payroll taxes, income taxes. Um, sales taxes they are subsidizing both the uh, uh the commercial landlords as well as the residential property owners hmm. so we're seeing like you know it's very easy as somebody in oakland to kind of see the jobs housing imbalance is kind of a driver of the housing crisis here and so san francisco will go ahead and approve 13 jobs for every one housing unit and Palo Alto will be twenty jobs for every one housing unit, and so not only are they uh, benefiting from you know excluding uh, lower and middle income people from their cities, they are benefiting because they can have a lower overall effective rate for their um, their homeowners and yeah. their property, their landowners because of that.
0: So this kind of goes to the some questions I have or concerns. I think it's good to talk about this is the Henry George program, and as uh, as kind of. The the general base belief is uh, all land should be you should capture the value residential and commercial and the fact is I am not really I don't want to be a purist I don't want to say you know nothing until you get the revolution but I you know what are the concerns that in the short term this could lead to more people zoning for commercial you know, this fiscalization of, of zoning is this something you think people should uh, be worried about in this ca- case well I think. A couple things. One, we we kind of do want
1: cities to. I mean, when if as long as those commercial entities are paying um, their their fair share, you know, it's good for companies to create jobs. Um, I think at the same time we need to have another stick, which is um, you know affordable housing policy and land use policy to say you can't just approve office you also have to approve housing and affordable housing and so i i think it's a you know we're fighting one battle right now
0: um, i mean so you look around the bay area almost every county mm-hmm. you know especially the ones that are doing the 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 best have huge jobs housing imbalances and it's yeah. kind of weird that we Tend to say like, oh, nothing we can do about it. It's yeah. just it's just the, the market doing its thing. What do you th- what do you, what are your personal preferences and what are the best ways to deal with jobs housing and balances? Well,
1: one thing to consider is also is if the if companies are paying now essentially market value on the land values, um, then they might consider um, moving out to places that have high levels of homes. And lower land values generally. Mm. So uh, places like um, Alameda County, Northern Alameda County, Oakland, Berkeley, um, Central Contra Costa, East East Contra Costa County, um, places that have a lot of housing already, they become might become more attractive. We also could just equalize some of our jobs housing imbalance because you know your your land values are going to be high in the already high places. So it might incentivize some. Um, lower rent or profitable businesses to shift out and so we can have a rebalancing effect.
0: I mean, I wouldn't even like to add more tools to the box. Like, for example, Stanford has recently been trying to add more expansion of of, of uh, commercial uh, uh, floor space. And, so, and they have to ask for permission by the county. And the county says, unless you're adding housing for workers or the impact thereof, we're not going to approve it. And I'd say yeah. counties and cities could be doing more to actually say, just know you can't add. You know you can't keep up this imbalance, but you actually have to. You actually have to keep yourself honest.
1: Yeah, and I think that we have to consider that the split role campaign is happening in coordination with um, increased regional planning from the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. That's going to help increased, um, um, you know, state level housing um, work uh, in terms of uh, land use bills and affordable housing subsidies. So. We need more regional planning. We need more state laws that allow places to uh, grow uh, in equitable ways. Yeah. But you, you have to think about these working in Tana, and you know, no, one ballot measure is not going to fix all these problems. But as long as we keep our eyes on the prize of creating that equitable growth, right where sure. where the the incumbents are not necessarily the incumbents are not driven out of business. Um, but they they have to pay their fair share and we're also welcoming to new entrants if we keep those principles of mind of in terms of valuing inclusiveness in our policy split roll can can occur while regional and state reforms can kind of percolate down where we're saying you know city you you've you've maxed out on your office space you need to rezone and meet you know your housing production targets in order to add additional office space,
0: and, and I think that is a good point. It's not like this is an isolated thing. These people have the right mojo. They they have the right vision. They 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 know the jobs housing balance is a problem, and they certainly everyone working for this wants to work towards remedies. Yeah, right?
1: I mean, I I mean, just take it from the fact that you have the uh, League of Women Voters uh, is one of the primary. Um, uh, sponsors authors of the uh, split roll initiative and uh they're also they just uh, last week endorsed SB50 uh, the transit and uh opportunity rich upzoning bill that Scott wiener wrote yeah. so and you'll see that the building trades who are supporting split roll they are also um you know supporters of SB50 and other affordable housing uh Bills that are at the state level. So th- this coalition is one that is built on making sure you know
0: we we have yeah. equitable <laughs> equitable civil society. So and, and, and cracking the residential nut is the hardest nut to avoid displacement. And I think it's it's absolutely right to say let's let's not put that in our plate right out of the gate.
1: Right, and and I think it's also they're doing an effective job of messaging that, and then also building a, a bigger coalition. Um, their focus is on closing the corporate tax loophole, which it is. Um, I mean, on this show, we can, we're, I imagine you're a little, um, you don't need to feel like you're hiding the ball on Prop 13. I think your, your positions are pretty
0: yeah, and open. I, th- I think people who criticize me or something, I've, mm-hmm. I have a lot of fans who say, like, you want to tax Granny out of her homes. Like, the answer is no, but we need to make sure we preserve people in their community mm-hmm. without preserving their rights to. To benefit Ex- off their equity. Right, you know? right. And and this is possible. We need to move towards community land trusts, low equity models, and a lot of different things that can at once protect our residents and our communities and, two, stop unproductive real estate speculation. Yeah. This is not – I mean, it's not an either or.
1: Right. And it, as long as we have – again, as we have that coalition that is has values of inclusiveness – I think that that can work. Um, one thing to consider, though, is that they,
0: you don't want to let Blackstone into the tent and say, like, we want to tax granny at right. home.
1: And honestly, I, I have to say the coalition argument is important because uh, for the original Prop 13 passage, one of the biggest problems that they had was that the business community, the labor community, uh, civil society organizations um they were all in this together and all none of them could agree on their message. Yeah. The business communities didn't want an anti corporate message that the labor movement was pushing and civil society disagreed about, you know, where if we emphasize cuts or what services or what. So, so so
0: the one freak with a clear message just trampled over the field. Right.
1: So I think what's what's really inspiring or at least on, on this push is that there is just a consistent, clear message about this idea that you—we have so many unmet needs. Yeah, we cannot allow this this corporate property tax loophole to continue to exist. Um, so, I mean, one of the cool things is to see uh, presidential candidates for for 2020 coming out and endorsing this before – they were endorsing this before a single signature. Yeah. Uh, the signatures, I think, came out uh, last week or two weeks ago uh, – or are the, are the uh, petitions yeah. for uh, getting it on the ballot. And so we had, like, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren um, – Cory Booker, I think, and a couple other presidential candidates. I think it's like five total already. Um, maybe that's, that's only a third of the. the, the yeah, they will get there. But so we've had like the big frontrunners. A lot of the big frontrunners endorsing this ballot measure that's not even going to be on the ballot for another, you know, fifteen, sixteen months. I think that's really cool in terms of we're we're setting we're telling the Democratic Party. The labor civil civil society organizations are saying if you're going to come campaign in California if you're going to raise money from us you have to endorse schools and community first uh, and split roll yeah so I think that is it's you know no litmus test but if you're if you're coming in here and you want the endorsement of progressive organizations you have to say. I support schools and community first.
0: I mean, I can definitely I, I, I really respect the fact that they have done a great job carving out the right politically feasible like don't address mom and pop commercial businesses yeah. because then you really have a very clear message. Yeah. We're dealing with the commercial real estate speculators uh, of, of major scale in our urban areas and like how can you say no? Yeah. I mean, you, you think about,
1: and this is going to maybe get a little bit more obvious as time goes on, but Hearst Corporation which owns uh, The Chronicle uh, and a bunch of other magazines in New York and whatnot, they're one of the biggest la- uh, landowners in the city of San Francisco. So, yeah. you know, we're going to see... That's <laughs> funny. Yeah, it, it's kind of scary, but... Yeah. Uh, it's
0: nice that newsprint is more and more relevant every day
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, in, our, in our... Yeah, and
0: every Twitter account, you, you, don't, you don't take up any space. Right, so...
1: Just it's it's going to be a fight. I think that's. I think um, the good thing is is that we have a lot of really good people on our side. Yeah. Um. And they have a really good message.
0: I think the thing that's really I think call my mind of saying don't worry too much about fiscalization is so much of the bad stuff going on is in the fact there is an artificial austerity and scarcity going on, and this is just making us I think desperate, mean, and and just work against each other. Just turning this faucet on yeah. of saying we can capture the value of commercial landowners, this is going to mean, it's going to take the noose off of so much of, of the political action of our cities. And this is, I think, going to allow us the breathing room to really get our feet in a better place.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, we haven't even discussed it, but the, the amount of money that the legislative analyst um, office uh, pegged this as was um, $12 billion a year. Yeah. Um, and I think, Think the California state, like just the state budget, because uh, this doesn't go to into the state budget. Um, the state, for context, the state budget for the whole state is, is like somewhere north of 120 billion dollars. So I think it might be 140. Um, and I tend to think
0: that's out of the gate, and yeah. this will actually lead to a virtuous cycle of more and more uh, urban agglomeration being recaptured, and it's going to lead to you know, I think, tremendous amounts of of money for for infrastructure, right? And so you.
1: That's a significant amount of money for cities. Um, Alameda County, I think, is going to get something like, um, I think it's like $500 million a year. Um, For context, um, the amount of money, if we decided to, if the city of, or the county of Alameda decided they were going to take their whole pot of money to um, end effective homelessness, essentially to like make it so it's like, we have a permanent supportive housing for anybody who's currently unhoused. There might be people who come in or get evicted and the friction, I guess. Yeah. But if we could build enough prefer- per- permanent supportive housing for every unhoused person in that last point in time count, that would cost, I think, like 300, 400 million. Yeah. So if we wanted to just like solve this one issue, which is terrifying and plaguing our county, we yeah. said we're not going to put it into schools, but we could just end one issue like we could just be like we're taking care of that yeah and you know we're not gonna there are gonna be people who say i need this slice of the pie and i need that slice of pie but how much nicer is to have that conversation yeah then we're gonna have to cut your slice of the pie and we're all gonna have to deal with less
0: and it's not just the money when you deal with real estate speculation i believe you get a lot of knock-on effects that are really going to help the fact that it's going to help us be able to manage our land and deal with homelessness in a lot, I think, smarter ways.
1: Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, the idea that we're going to be able to fund our schools, um, that we're going to be able to – and for all the people who love local control, the cities and counties are going to get this money and they're going to say, what are our priorities? Are we going to uh, fund parks? Are we Are going to fund libraries? Are we Are going to fund uh, homelessness prevention? Uh, right to eviction council? Like all – there are so many possibilities – we have in a, an era where we have expanding uh public wealth rather than, you know, fighting among uh among scraps.
0: So so in the details as far as this uh I guess schools and communities first, how much is kind of is earmarked for schools and how much like and how much flexibility is absolute here?
1: Yeah, so I believe 50% through K through 12 and then 10% to community colleges. Okay. And then 40% to um it goes to counties first, and then they break it up based on population or whatnot. So, so yeah. there'll 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 be a lot more flexibility within that county share. Yeah. Um. But I, ho- k- I hope k- it's
0: done better than a lot of stuff now is done by nineteen seventy popul nineteen seventies population counts for how a city divvies up uh prop thirteen or property tax funds after Toronto yeah. priest. That's a
1: whole. It's a whole That's different, a whole different yeah. bag. Of, yeah. Yeah. Um. I mean that. Those are the kind of like um. Real tax nerd type of uh, debates, but again, <laughs> we we
0: might it's not hear where. Yeah,
1: well, more of the, the accounting, <laughs> yeah, yeah, rather than the policy. I mean, the, the the thing is, if we're talking about these, you know, radical changes and how much we're getting, it, it might be who of us to talk about re, you know, reworking the formula here and there. The good news is that California has been directing. They they have recently. Uh, updated their school funding allocation formula to prioritize um, uh, Title One schools uh, that have, you know, high need students. So Oakland will be getting a bigger share than it would have maybe like twenty years ago mm. of this additional money, which you know our students absolutely need.
0: So okay, timing. Uh, so you said the, the 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 petitions are just recently out. Yeah, the they, gathering signatures. What's what's the timeline on this whole signature gathering thing?
1: So there's going to be some. Um, organizations, uh, teachers, um, teachers unions, uh, service workers unions, they're all going to be pounding the pavement to go get these uh, signatures. And, um, you know, if you're at a, uh, I was at the uh, street festival yesterday and, you know, there are people out there with the, the petitions there. And so you should be, you know, if you're at Safeway or whatever, you should be looking on the lookout for the schools and community first signatures. They have until I believe January to okay. get, and I think it's one million signatures they need to get. Um,
0: I'm confused by this process. There's actually people. I thought I thought Michael Weinstein just funds ballot measures. I thought <laughs> that's the only way this happens.
1: No, I mean I think they might like depending on the you know how close it gets at the end. They probably will employ some signature gatherers. But this is a really this is a grassroots movement. This is um, they they're having a um, march for education rally uh, next week in San Jose. San Francisco and Oakland and yeah. students and teachers and parents are going to be out out there in, in Oakland. It's going to be at Lake Merritt Amphitheater on uh, November 9th. Yeah. Um, and they're going to be out there and saying, you know, we need more resources for our kids and we need more. Uh, we need nurses. We need um we need more people taking care of our kids in their classrooms. And so it's going to be a big rally and we're going to get uh, petitions out. So that's something to, to look forward to. I don't know when this is coming out, but, uh, you know, it's it's a grassroots movement. And uh, I, there's I, if you follow the Schools and Community First people on social media, they just have like – you know, they got the T-shirts, they got the signs. Like it's, it's kind of exciting.
0: Yeah, just this month, uh, I, I for the first time canvassed with petitions for the uh, RV ban, reversing that in Mountain View. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's something. It's a blast. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine uh, that they'll have instructions on how to get it set up if you want to canvass yourself. As well.
1: Yeah, and and what's exciting is um, I think because a lot of these presidential. Uh, Campaigns have endorsed schools and community first. You know, uh, at this street festival yesterday in Oakland, they had uh, Bernie people out there. They had Elizabeth Warren people out there. They're, I imagine they're going to start grabbing uh, petitions too, and you're going to have people who are canvassing for Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or um, Castro or whoever who are also going to be saying, you know, like, yeah. hey, can I tell you about Bernie? Can I also get your signature for schools and community first? Yeah. And now we're really cooking with gas. And the faster that we can get this qualified and we can reach out to people and and get it so we have, I think it's a million signature, valid signatures. So we need to get, I think, a 1.5 million total yeah. um, just to be safe. The faster we can get those signatures and get qualified, the more time we can have and focus on public education and yeah. reaching out to people and being like we're building a movement for – that it's not about your house or your grandma's house; it's about making sure that Chevron pays, you know.
0: And and I love the fact that the housing discourse is always cursed, but everybody agrees on yeah. on, on, on the split roll. You know, yeah. it's really it's re- it's refreshing. It's Everything n- else is hell. This it's is-
1: nice when you have a, a lot of everybody's on the same team, and yeah. I mean everybody but the commercial landlords.
0: <laughs> yeah, Chevron's not going to be in your, on your tent. Yeah, that's,
1: yeah, yeah I'm, I'm okay with them being on the other uh, team, but yeah, it, it's nice when everybody. Um, you know, you can, you can have your political differences and you can have, you can have your
0: priorities differently yeah, on how you move ahead. But,
1: but yeah. we're going to need everybody, everybody who cares about a more equitable California. You need to be on this, this train. Yeah.
0: So, so one sideline, I think we want to talk about just, just briefly, cause I think it's interesting, you know, a lot, a lot of times when we talk about value capture here in California, you feel like everything is impossible until we repeal Prop 13. And uh, one thing actually we're talking about off mic before we started was uh, land value tax is illegal because it's a ad valorem tax. But in California, Prop 13 would not disallow capital gains to be taxed in in, in, in which would be a land value increment tax. And any any anything that people should know about like how this could possibly serve as a way to kind of also scrape together some more of the value?
1: Yeah, um so land value, value increment tax um I another word for it might be a windfall tax. And the idea is that um if you own a piece of property and you, say you bought it for $100,000 20 years ago, um and maybe you, you know, added a second bedroom and then maybe your property tax basis went up a little bit. Yeah. But Flash forward to 2019, that the value of that property is now nine hundred thousand dollars. Did you do much to to earn that when you sold it? Yeah, not really. Well, unfortunately, the federal government uh, excludes the first five hundred thousand dollars for a married couple. they exclude that from capital gains, that windfall. So we can't tax that first five hundred thousand dollars. Well, five
0: hundred—that's like a sixth of a house around here. <laughs> like that's that's chump change.
1: Yeah. Um, so that that's untouched. But that everything over five hundred thousand uh, dollars, a state—I mean, the federal government taxes. I don't know what the existing. Capital short term or long term capital gains is, but they take their chunk from the long term capital gains. And, um, but states are free to add their own, uh, additional tax or, um, you know, the state could change it. So maybe, uh, one county could, have, uh, do a windfall tax. Yeah. But so you could add a three, four, five, six percent tax on that, uh, above $500,000 capital gains. And we could start getting some of that value of people who've appreciated, um, their land has appreciated over time through no effort of their own.
0: Yeah, and they're and they're selling off. It's not like it's like, "Oh, don't don't affect us. We're just trying to live quite a quiet little life." Like you are selling out. It's it's very reasonable to say you don't get pure profit on right, it.
1: Right, right. And so the uh, you know, 4%, 5%, um, that could actually generate some decent revenue. Um during the CASA debate um, for the Metropolitan Transportation Commission, was kind of a, let's get everybody in the room. We'll have the housers, uh, we'll have the developers, we'll have the landlords, we'll have the, the big, anti-poverty groups. And the big
0: tech companies. Big tech co- just we got, all the big players.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, the big players, they all got in a room. And one of the value, um, kind of one of the revenue sources for funding the the massive affordable housing needs that we have was this windfall tax. And uh, MTC staff put together this uh, analysis and it said you do a th- there are seventy five thousand homes that turn over um, uh, or properties that turn over in the in the nine county bay area every year and if we tax them at three point three five percent we would generate a hundred million dollars in revenue.
0: And this is three point three five on the windfall itself or uh,
1: above five hundred thousand yeah, dollars of the yeah. windfall. So, you know, somebody who made what, eight hundred thousand dollars, you tax three percent off of the three three hundred thousand dollars, you get what, uh what I can't do math. Uh, no one can do math. Yeah. But, well, but it, go, it, It's
0: it's it's a it's a it's something you can work on at home. And yeah. But
1: this. So they they showed that you could yield, and that was a, I mean, my opinion, three percent off of everything over five hundred dollars is a pretty modest ask.
0: Yeah, I was going to say like there's no real reason to start off that conservative because yeah. this is purely windfall on non-productive assets. I mean, the biggest argument against it would be like, if you tax taxes highly enough, people won't sell their house. But right. honestly, don't you actually want to kind of preserve your community? If you want to sell your house for what you made, like it, you shouldn't be guaranteed to profit. Making people profit from selling your home shouldn't be the way to incentivize turnover so much. Right? As cities should grow organically and preserve people if they want to. Right. I mean, if you have a use, if you, if you're if you're so
1: committed to use values, you know, I'm I'm not. Yeah, every time you ask an older homeowner about, uh, like, you know, how you're not paying a lot in terms of property tax, I and, live
0: right next to the North Berkeley BART station, but I like I don't benefit from it. Right.
1: I mean, ask them is like, do you mind if we take a, a 10? Uh, you take a 10 haircut off of your windfall. Like, I think they might care. So, yeah. do, do you, is it a use value? Is it an exchange value? I,
0: you got to figure it out. But it's, I, it's weird if you say like, oh, please write off the right for you to profit. It's like I'm not, I'm not a speculator, but they. never- Never give away this this upside, right?
1: So I, I think it's a it's a really important tool, and I think in the context of additional infrastructure investment, um, if we're talking about building new BART lines, if we're talking about a second Transbay Tube, um, I think it's a really smart option because we are uh, where we build these new infrastructure public transit projects. Um, people are benefiting from that uh, investment in proximity to transit stations, and we're going. To, that that increase in land values is going to capitalize into their sales price, and we're just going to say, "Hey, we're we going to need a piece of that. We we invested in it, and we're gonna we're gonna need a piece of it on the back end.
0: And, and if the argument to say you need to keep it is like oh well this is my retirement plan this is a bad system for giving people good retirements we should actually have sustainable communities that help homeowners renters and don't really or perhaps a pension <laughs> yeah, I mean like there's a yeah. lot of better ways than saying we need to make sure everybody makes millions off of real estate speculation uh, in the long term cuz that doesn't scale <laughs>
1: right yeah and, and it hasn't in the last 40 years i mean as i said it's the beneficiaries of of prop 13 have been homeowners and affluent communities. It hasn't been people in Fresno and Bakersfield. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the land value increment tax is, I think, a really attractive um, funding mechanism. Uh, I think about this because it, it didn't go forward with the CASA process, and nobody has really touched it in terms for affordable housing. If, if
0: everybody liked it, how did it not go forward with it?
1: Oh, no, no not everybody liked it. It was actually kind of unpopular. Um, oh,
0: okay. Uh, well, who who spoke against it the most?
1: Well, it was it was— No one spoke against it because it never actually got up to a public meeting. Oh, it's just too weird. (laughs) Yeah. So, but in terms of if, you know, MTC staff did a lot of really good work to come up with this, present it, and um, I think we're looking at a potential 2020 um, mega measure for transit and transportation funding, including potentially a second Transbay tube uh, to connect Oakland and uh, Alameda and San Francisco, and... I think we, if we're going to make these public infrastructure investments, we should consider um, including things like LVIT, land value increment tax, as part of the revenue stream because it's that virtuous cycle of people who, you know, when we build that new BART station, if you're a landowner and you're just using your property, that's fine. We'll go, you know, hopefully we change the tax structure in other places. But in the meantime, at that point of sale, we're going to take a piece off of you because your land value has increased because of that BART station. Um, and so that's one that's one
0: strategy. And if you if you don't feel that you are benefiting from the society you live in, like, you should just, like, live in, you know, a shack in the middle of nowhere. It's like you live in a city. Yeah. Know, be a good citizen,
1: guy. You're still going to, you know—well, I don't know if it's politically feasible, but, like, you know— You're still going to end up with like ninety percent of the actual windfall, like yeah, and again through no effort of your own. Um, So this is, I think, this is a really good strategy in terms of funding the 2020 mega measure uh, because currently, what's really frustrating is what's on the table that the business groups, the Silicon Valley Leadership Foundation, SPUR, kind of just the the people who normally put this stuff together, is they're saying hundred percent sales tax and Sales tax is, you know, it's yeah, it's, obviously regressive. It penalizes low-income people.
0: And it's invi- It's like it's an invisible thing that just is stealing from people who really should take back from the people who are stealing from them. Right? It's, it's so. It just. It makes me so viscerally upset.
1: So the good thing is, is uh, there's a, a coalition of um, of groups uh, that are, you know, um, public transit riders, uh, labor in terms of uh, building trades. And um, operating um, labor, the people who drive buses, um, uh, bike groups and uh, housing groups, including East Bay for Everyone, they're joining together in this coalition called Voices for Public Transit. um, And they're saying, you know, one, we need a better we need a better transit system, regional transit system. And two, it cannot be paid for on the backs of the people who can afford it the least. It needs to, you know, you know, employers need to contribute. Landowners need to contribute. And, you know, if we have to have a small sales tax maybe but we we cannot be a hundred percent a sales tax if we're going to invest in the system everybody has to contribute landowners haven't really been contributing
0: yeah um (laughs) they've been making tons of money and i guess that's what's really cool about this is like a lot of times you're like land value tax this is a big big idea that mm -hmm. is not happening tomorrow but lvit is something which actually could really happen almost at a drop of a hat yeah and i think it's it
1: might even be politically easier, just because it's. You're, again, it's somebody who's who's profiting. Like they are, they are liquid. You're,
0: you're not taking the imputed rents. Right, the imputed rents. You need to crack that in my mind, but it's a really, really hard nut to crack. When people sell off, this is a lot easier. It's liquid money. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's tough
1: to feel bad for somebody who's, you know, take cashing out. Yeah. Um, so. It's uh, it's exciting in terms of I think it's getting a little bit more interest. Um, whether it's enough time to get into the actual 2020 measure, it's coming fast. Like sure. it's it's because uh, it's got to essentially it's got to be passed out of the legislature by the spring. It's cool. It's in the discussion though. Yeah, that's really
0: cool. And just just in general, I mean, to ask like from following everybody on regional housing, transit, and everything, are you seeing a change in people? Thinking more about value capture,
1: yeah, I think I think there is a I think there's a realization that a lot of discussion in the last decade plus has been about planning value capture. You know, it's like um, bonuses and density and all that kind of stuff. But we're we've been just letting landowners, um, you know, get all this this value for so long. So I think you know I think there is it's slowly trying to seep in um i think there's been more identification in terms of um you know who has paid who has put money up and we've had a lot of sales taxes and we've also had a lot of parcel taxes and bonds which are not they're just kludgy and they're not the best way to fund things and so we're we're reaching the limit in in a lot of communities that are like reaching their practical limit of a sales tax, um, where they're still going to start looking for alternatives, and um, something like land value increment tax is it's there. I know it's it's politically harder because again landowners have a lot of power. But if you're only hitting seventy five thousand of them a year, that's yeah. you know you you know seventy five thousand people in any given year, or maybe one hundred fifty thousand people in a given year thinking about selling a property. You can outvote one hundred fifty thousand people pretty easily, and I
0: think the messaging—if you keep the messaging clear about it's a windfall tax—I think that has been very effective in different places. Yeah, I, I think back like Singapore, which of course has a bit of, a, of a, a tighter grip on its populace, but it sold a lot of its value capture schemes as you know windfall to landowners. We just can't run our city this way. Yeah, and I mean they—they they certainly have better infrastructure. Everything else aside. Right. Yeah. Uh, so any other final thoughts? What makes you optimistic that things are moving ahead in a good direction here?
1: Yeah. Again, it's, we have a really good coalition. Uh, we have, it, it feels like, you know, if you're a member of civil society uh, in California, Which most of us are, uh, you know, you, except for you, the
0: seasteaders and the weird weirdos.
1: Yeah. You know, we are Delta, uh, boat people, but like, you know, if you're a member of a community, if you know a teacher, if you, uh, if you have friends that are in the service industry, if you've it, been to school, if you think yeah, you might go to school, you were affected by the 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 poverty of our public services over the last forty years, um, and so you can see, you know, in your in your town, um, the 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 way this is manifested. It's a lot harder to see the differences in sales tax, or sorry, in in property tax among commercial. Landlords, that's the problem, is we can see the fact that our public services have been underfunded. It's really easy to see that. It's much harder to see who has been avoiding that tax. Yeah. Um, so that is why I think that the walking tours that I've been doing has been really great because it helps visualize that. I, I'm I'm hoping that, um, you know, we've gotten a little bit of interest about doing them in other cities in addition to Oakland and maybe do it in Berkeley or San Francisco. I'm hoping that— I heard that,
0: someone might be thinking about doing Palo Alto even.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is it's a very scalable— public education tour. You know, you find your downtown, you look up some of the uh, property assessment information on the web on their uh, assessor's website, and you can do this. You can uh, jerry-rig your own tour and identify these things because every community has these differentials. You know, every community has somebody who, some commercial landlord that has just been, um, you know, pocketing the difference. And so if, 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 you know, if you're interested in terms of, um, Trying to put together your own public education tour, uh, especially after the the um, the petitions have been submitted and we've got all those. Uh, contact me at East Bay for Everyone because uh, we're really interested in trying to scale this and try to say, you know, this is a really fun way, especially next summer when you're people are going to be knocking on doors in the fall. Yeah. This is a really good way to get people um, to understand the issue because it, it can get kind of technical for people who don't love uh, assessor data.
0: <laughs> so, so, so if people want to follow uh, updates about new walking tours in uh, the East Bay, certainly is the East Bay for Everyone. It's social media, the best place to, yeah. to
1: follow this. East Bay for Everyone. Um, on Twitter, um, if you're interested in going and checking out our meetings, uh, uh, we have our schedule on our website, eastbayforeveryone.org, something like that. And um, the email if you want to uh, contact us and find out more about either attending one of our tours in Oakland or if you want to create your own, uh, we- we'd love to help you out.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, uh, look forward to see how this develops. Great. We have been talking to Derek Sagehorn all about schools and communities first the Prop 13 split roll. His article at the Skoka blog is linked to in the description at the website SeatTheCat.org or all previous episodes of this show. Live. This is a presentation of Kizya Shu, Stanford.